we come this morning to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. Thus far in Malachi, we've seen a host of symptoms reflecting a hardening heart of Israel. People chosen by God to reflect and revere Him in all that they do. We've seen them desire uh, the blessing of God, but the ultimate will of their life to live apart from the covenant, the goodness of God's word that He'd given them for relationship with Himself in this point of time. They've taken the priesthood and they've rewired it. All of these things, this gift that God has given them, they've rewired it for their own blessing and they've experienced the consequences of doing so. We've seen marriage, this gift that God had given Israel, again, to reflect and revere Him. And in editing that gift, they experience the consequences of doing so. We've discussed and noted how the men have, in large numbers, divorced their wives of their youth and pursued foreign women in worshiping then their pagan gods. This morning, we deal with finances. All of these are symptoms. We as human beings have a reaction and a reflex of dealing outwardly in instead of what God does through the prophets of pointing out the issue is inwardly out. Jesus comes and he identifies again the problem of from out of the heart the mouth speaks. All of these are symptoms. But just as our marriage text that we looked at isn't an issue of marriage, this text of finances isn't an issue of finances, all of these are symptoms of when God's people desire to edit God's word and will for their life consequences that will come will always be the case. And when things begin to get difficult, our temptation will be to, to, to shortwire, to figure out a way around what God's Word says we ought to do. We'll look for a quick fix. Applied in a marriage context, in our own culture, the situation often becomes two people come together, I need counsel, I need to help figure out what do we need to do right, and they're looking oftentimes for a short fix. So, so show me what the problem is so I can just fix it quickly and we can move on. In family dynamics, it's the same. In individual dynamics, it's likewise the same. So, so when we come to a financial text, the situation might be, so, so how much should I give exactly? But all of these are symptoms for Israel's hardened heart. Her heart is hard. And what God will do is not tell them to fix their heart. What God will do is tell them to return to Him. He's the only one that can fix their heart. If they will but return to him and abide in the covenant made at Sinai that they agreed to enter into, he will take them back. He will restore them. The blessing and the application for our lives this morning is paramount. In a multitude of areas, and specifically in the context of finances, is looking at all the areas of our life and saying, God, will you examine me? The areas of my life that are symptoms of a hardening heart, would you help me to see that there's a deeper issue? Give me eyes to see and ears to hear. And I want to be a man, I want to be a woman driven by your word with a soft heart today. Show me the symptoms that reveal a hardening heart. And give me the boldness and the humility to return to you. And in this, we note that the Lord is unchanging. It's the Lord's unchanging, perfect being. The fact that He is the unchanging, perfect being that gives Israel hope. As we've went through this, this prophetic book thus far, we've, we've seen an unbelievable amount of conviction. 
Israel's guilty left and right, left and right, and yet still they can return to him because he is the unchanging, perfect being. The hope for us gathered here this morning as sinners, those who have sinned against a holy and just and good God, is that he is unchanging and perfect. He keeps his word always. We shift like the shadows of the world, but the Lord is unchanging. He's faithful. So regardless of what you've been through before you came through these doors this morning, you can go to the unchanging, perfect being who always keeps his word. That's the good news of hope for us, and that's the good news of hope for Israel as he identifies the symptom of a hardened heart through their difficult and untrustworthy financial situation. Let's note first, the Lord is the unchanging, perfect being, so turn to him. We're going to see this in 6 through 9, then we'll shift in 10 through 12. The idea right now in our context, the charge that God gives us and gives to Israel is to turn and to trust in him today. As we trust in him, the question becomes, how then do I abide in him? How do I keep trusting in him? And the answer is by his word. Just as the Lord is unchanging and the perfect being, so too then his word is unchanging and perfect for us to abide in for all areas of our life in all circumstances and seasons that we may face. So note with me first that the Lord is the unchanging, perfect being, so turn to him. Why? Well, here's three reasons. Because, verse 6, he is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. There's a, there's a humble resiliency, a pride that marks us when we endure a trial, isn't there? I mean, when you go through a hard season of life and you're still standing, there is a natural pride that comes in. We think about Veterans Day tomorrow. We are proud of our veterans. We're thankful for you. And what God does to Israel right here at the very beginning, remember Israel has been through an unbelievable amount. They've been taken off into exile, but they're back. They're back. There might have been a temptation to say, look at us, look at our humble resiliency we have. And what God does from the very beginning is says, listen, that's not because of you. That's because of my faithfulness that you're not consumed. Look what he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, you're, you're here, you're, you're back in the land, but if it was based upon your faithfulness, you would be consumed. But because I'm faithful, because I keep my promise to Abraham, I keep my covenant, you are not consumed. When it comes to faith for Israel, it's not survival of the fittest, and it's not survival of the luckiest. It's survival because God is faithful and good. He's the perfect being. That's a good word for us this morning. He is the, the sure foundation to build your life upon, regardless of what you've come through before this morning. If you will today, today decide to, to build upon the goodness of knowing and doing the word of the Lord, knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified, and building your life upon him and trusting in him, you build on a sure foundation. That's the good news of hope. And that's what Israel has at the very beginning of this segment of scripture we look at. The good news for them is not that they're standing by their might. They're not. They're standing because God is faithful. We come and we worship the king because he is faithful. And by his grace, we, we gather together, we hear his word. And the spirit of God uses his word to craft into our lives, to embolden us, to, to apply his word in every circumstance and crevice of our lives. 
And the goodness is that he is unchanging. He is faithful. Your circumstances are different today than they were last week. But he's unchanging. He's the sure foundation to build your life upon this week. He is who he says he is. That's good news for us this morning. When Saul is pursuing David to kill him, in 2 Samuel 22, David survives. It's kind of the last effort of Saul to murder him, which would totally sound like a tough, tough season of life. He survives, and, and David mentions, and in 2 Samuel 22, he mentions a, a number of descriptions of who God is. He hides in these caves, and he, he reflects upon who the Lord is. And listen to what he says about the Lord. He says he is the, the unchanging rock. He's the fortress. He's the deliverer. He's the refuge, the shield, the horn of salvation, the stronghold, the Savior. He is who he says he is. In a world where we live with people, and we are people, we let each other down. The Lord is who he says he is. So Israel can take hope. Israel can trust in him. He is who he says he is. And secondly, he is where he says he will be, verse 7. He is where he says he will be. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Israel can return to the Lord because he is where he says he will be. He's faithful to the covenant promises. He's unchanging. And the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son runs off and he ends up in the, the pigsty. He's eating slop. And the prodigal son can go back and he can go back home. Why? Because his dad is where he is going to be. He can hit home on the navigation button and he's going to go back to his father. Israel, even though they have gone astray in their heart and it's reflected in a massive amount of heartache and consequences, they can go back to the Lord because He is who He says He is. He's where He says He will be. He keeps His covenant promises by the word, by His word. He doesn't change His mind. We come to the Lord's word with confidence because He is who He says He is. And He is where He says He will be. We look at this and we say, will God really take Israel back? I mean, after all that they've done, will he really take them back? Maybe you ask that question about your life. If only you knew what I've done or what I've been through. Would God really take me? The answer the Lord gives to Israel is an abounding yes. If you will but return to me, I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What a gracious offer and invitation the Lord gives Israel. A people marked in brokenness and unfaithfulness and sin. What an invitation. And how does Israel respond to the invitation? How shall we return? How shall we return? The Lord gives them an invitation to come home, and they say, we're already home. What have we done wrong? You see the amazingness of a hardened heart? Sin blinds us. It, it calcifies us. It's what it does. It numbs us. And so in the prodigal example, it would be like if the prodigal son went to, I totally forgot the name of that place again, not Home Depot, Hobby Lobby. I did the first service too. They helped me out. 
definitely didn't help me well enough because I forgot it. It's like he went to Hobby Lobby and bought a home is where the heart is, and he hung it right above the pig slop bucket. That's what Israel's done. God says, if you will but return to me. And they said, what do you mean return? We've never left. You see the foolishness of that. In our hearts, even in good rhythms that we take, the Lord calls us to not forsake the gathering together of the brethren. We're to gather together in the local church with what can happen even when we keep healthy rhythms of life, healthy disciplines. Our hearts can drift when we're called out. We can respond like Israel. I'm where I'm supposed to be. I've not gone anywhere. But in reality, our hearts are far. Our conscience is hard. But he is where he says he will be. And his invitation is genuine. Third, he will do what he says he will do. He will do what he says he will do. Verse 8 and 9. Right after their response, how shall we return? God says in verse 8, Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? The Lord answers, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And no one obviously will rob God and get away with it, but they respond back to God, how have we robbed you? It's this, grammatically, it's this constant, continuous robbing that's going on. They haven't simply stolen from God, they continue to steal from God. God owns all things. And they entered into, catch this, they entered into this covenant promise that, that dealt with a responsibility and a commitment to tithing. A tenth, not only of their finances, but of their, their agriculture and their animals, their livestock. They were to tithe of all those things. And they're choosing not to. We'll see in a little bit the reason why that is, I think. And in choosing not to keep their, their part of the covenant, they question the character and the trustworthiness of God because in the covenant relationship, it comes to promises. Promises that Israel was supposed to do and promises that God would do. And part of the consequence, they knowingly entered into this relationship with the Lord. Part of the consequences for them, if they did not tithe, was that he would curse the land. There would be consequences upon the land. This is for Israel. So they didn't do their side, and their land suffered, and they suffered greatly. They experienced the curse, the consequences of not trusting the Lord, of not doing what they were called to do, what they knowingly and willingly entered into. This is a problem that's pervasive throughout Israel. Numbers 10 and Numbers 13, it's a contemporary book around the similar time as Malachi's writing, about 400 years before Christ. It mentions the same things. Numbers 10, Numbers 13. The people have a hard heart, a symptom towards the Lord. They keep back their things in all these areas of life, rewiring and redefining marriage, rewiring and redefining the, the gifts of, and, the, and the stipulations of the covenant. And they experience the consequences that come with that. So what's the answer? The answer that you and I, as we discussed at the very beginning, our temptation is to want to band-aid over things. It would be like if you went for a physical and the doctor said, listen, you can't leave, this is too serious, you've got a heart problem. And they prepared you for surgery, and as they were putting you out, you just saw him come up with or her come up to you with a, with a Ninja Turtle Band-Aid. And they were going to put it on your chest. And you woke up and there was no incisions. There was just a Ninja Turtle Band-Aid over top of your heart. And you still got a bill for $30,000. Right? 
you would be dumbfounded. You think this isn't going to solve the problem? God is not guilting Israel into giving 10%. God owns all things. What God has called them to do is to return to him. And they return to him, they will gain a proper perspective of the covenant relationship they have with God. They will remember who God is. They will remember that God is trustworthy and faithful and that he will do what he promises he will do if they would but do what they were called to do in that covenant time and season. That's the danger we have for our life. Applications for us today. We spoke about, we went through our Galatians season regarding as New Testament believers, what should we do regarding generosity and giving? We discussed how we should give prayerfully, we should pray and we should give. We should give consistently, not to muzzle the ox who treads among you. We looked at that text in Galatians. We should give consistently, proportionally. We should give joyfully, not begrudgingly. In 1 Corinthians 8, they're called to excel in the grace of giving. To excel in the grace of giving. That's our application as believers, to excel in the grace of giving. A spirit-filled believer is joyfully, prayerfully giving as the Lord leads. To excel in the grace of giving. Let's give a further application on that. I know there's something in our lives and my heart as well that says, you know what, when I get older, when I, when I get more money, then I'll begin to give, to excel in the grace of giving. But it is a heart issue. I think in most disciplines of life, as God's Word calls us to excel in the grace of giving, what we often think is we'll rationalize and think, I'll give more when I get more. But what happens, as you know, is we tend to age. We get more, we spend more. And we think, well, when I get a little more, and what happens, it's, it's a reflex, it's a discipline in our life. But when we're faithful with little, when we excel in the grace of giving, when we give joyfully when we're young, we give joyfully when we're older. When we give joyfully and prayerfully when we're younger, we give joyfully and prayerfully as we gain more when we get older. Apply it to forgiveness. To excel in the grace of giving, to, to excel those who receive much, we ought to give much. So in the aspect of forgiveness, imagine you were discipling a middle school student. And you told them, well, listen, you don't really need to forgive that much because you haven't been sinned against that much as a, as a middle school student. But by the time you're in your 40s and 50s, you're going to be offended a lot. So save it. Just wait till you forgive. Save it all up and then forgive when you're in your 40s and 50s. That's not what you would do. You would call them to be faithful as the Spirit leads. If the Spirit leads you to give, you give. And the Scriptures tell us to excel in the grace of giving, so give joyfully. Not ashamedly, not begrudgingly. The call to Israel and the application for us is, the idea is this, to turn to the Lord today. Today, to turn to the Lord. In the areas of our life, listen, the areas of our life, time, talents, and treasure, the areas of our life where we are most closely and most likely to view them as ours. Is it your time? Or is it God's time that he's entrusted to you as a steward? Is it your talents and abilities? Or is it God's talents and abilities he's entrusted to you as a steward? Is it your treasures and resources, or, or is it God's treasures and resources he's entrusted to you as a steward? Which of those categories and which of those areas are you and, and I most likely to hold with a tight grip? To say, Lord, this area is yours, but this area is mine. That's what Israel's doing. Their heart is hard, and therefore all these areas of their life, their relationships, they take advantage of the weak among them. The grip gets tight because they foolishly thought it's all theirs. 
He is the unchanging, perfect being. So we're to turn to Him. And as we turn to Him, what do we abide in? We, the Lord's Word is unchanging and perfect, so abide in it. Secondly, we look at verse 10 through 12. The Lord's Word is unchanging and perfect, so abide in it. We abide in the Lord by His Spirit-breathed Word, for first, His character is above reproach. Just as the Lord is the unchanging, perfect being, His Word is unchanging and perfect to build our life upon, to abide in, to trust in, to rest in. It's good news. His character is above reproach. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need, no more need. His word is trustworthy. His character is above reproach. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. As you remember, the temple not only was the place of sacrifice and the place the Levites ministered, but there was also the storehouse that they would store everything in. So as Israel came bringing their, their tithes of grain and tithes of, of, uh, of, of livestock and those things, this would be the produce section. It would be kept not only for the Levites to eat and live on, but it would be kept for a national emergency that they would be able to distribute. They're withholding back. The Lord's word tells Israel, because of the covenant stipulations, he says, listen, you, you, you be faithful. You bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And watch what the Lord does. Matter of fact, he says what? That there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. The land is experiencing the, the curse, the consequence, because God, his character is trustworthy. His character said, Israel, if you do not what you're supposed to do in this covenant that I made with you at Sinai, there will be consequences upon you and the land. And it's one of two things. It's either an issue of a lack of rain or it's an issue of pests eating the land or perhaps both. We don't know. There's an Aggie in here that can probably figure it out for us, right? Well, the reason some people think it's an issue of a lack of rain as he says this, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, listen, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing. So some say maybe this is being figurative of the fact they're not getting enough rain. If they're faithful to do what they're called to do, they agree to do in the covenant. On their side, the Lord will do what he said. He will bless the land. He'll bring rain for them. I don't know. It's either that or it's the, the other side. It's the pest eating the land. But the point is the same. The land is experiencing the consequence. And what does God say? Put me to the test. We're going to camp on that for a moment. Put me to the test. In the context, what have we seen that that means? Put me to the test. God is telling Israel, he's made the covenant, he's made himself known by his word. He's saying, I will keep my part of the covenant. I am the faithful, unchanging, perfect being. Put me to the test. You've agreed to this. I'm not going to blow this. I'm going to keep my part. So you do what you're called to do and watch what I do. My character is trustworthy. Put me to the test doesn't mean, okay, for us today as Christians, let's put the Lord to the test. Let's put out a bunch of hypothetical situations and the Lord will show us what we need to do. That's not what we're called to do in this. That's ripping this out of context, but even more nefarious. Put me to the test is one of the most abused texts today. 
Israel entered into the situation with the covenant with the Lord in Deuteronomy 12, 14, and 26. We see the call and the command that God gave Israel to tithe. The consequences and blessings that will come, 12, 14, 26. But this text today is wildly abused by people that teach what's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is one of the main tools of wolves and heretics today. What the prosperity gospel teaches, and it's being exported ironically and sadly to the weakest of these, just as Israel was abusing the weak among them, the sojourner, it's being exported to Africa and Asia by the millions. What the prosperity gospel says, in short, is God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. That's part of why Jesus died for you. So it's a sin to be poor. It's a sin to be lacking. If you'll but give financially, the Lord will give you so much more. They turn God into a giant ATM. It is a damnable teaching, a heretical teaching, and it's being exported everywhere. It's a danger. It's a false gospel. It's not the true gospel. The true gospel of hope is, yes, Jesus. He's God's only Son. He came and took on flesh. He fulfilled all the demands of the law. Lived a perfectly righteous life. And being sent by God to save sinners like you and I, He would come and live a sinless life and He would lay His life down on the cross. Tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, He would die and be crucified for our sin. You imagine this just in a moment. Just think about this for a second. All the sins that we've committed, even in this room. I know not all of us here may be believers. But imagine all of us are right now. Think of all the sin we've ever committed in our life. Christ Jesus on His body bore our sin past, present, and future on the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Being nailed to His body on the tree. Jesus, in love and obedience to the Father, He defeated death, was buried, raised, and ascended to heaven. And He will come again, the God-man will come again. And He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And the good news is that we have hope and forgiveness and, and we're called to have a restored life as we walk out faithfully, abiding in Him as forgiven people, as righteous people. We've been made right with God in standing. All who will turn and trust in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, you have forgiveness and new life in Christ. So go and walk in His ways. Be fruitful and multiply. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Turn and trust in Him. You're forgiven. Adopted and called to newness of life to be and make disciple. That's the true gospel. But the prosperity gospel is it turns it into a financial exchange. Dr. David Jones gives two examples of this. Number one, that, that lacking material, two premises, I should say, of the prosperity gospel, this false teaching, that takes this word, this verse, verse 10, and says, if you will but put me to the test, I will pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Listen to what these false teachers do with this text. They say that lacking material, number one, lacking mater materiality is a sin. And Jesus' death on the cross for sin extends to material poverty. This is what heretics like Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar and Joel Olstein, and listen, this is sad to say, Paula White, 
is a spiritual advisor to President Trump. She teaches this. It's a false gospel. We must be aware and know the true gospel so when we see the counterfeits, the abuses, we'll know it. They teach things like God put our sin and sickness and disease and poverty on Jesus on the cross. You see how they take the good gospel and they tweak it? And they make statements like, if you'll give to their ministry, God will give you a multitude back. That's the second premise that Dr. David Jones speaks of, that Christians ought to give if they desire material compensation from God. They turn God into an investment plan. What sickness? They turn obedience and, and, and being good stewards of the gifts that God has given us into an investment portfolio. Listen to what Gloria Copeland says in her book. Give $10 and receive $1,000. Give $1,000 to my ministry today and receive $100,000 from God's storehouse. You see the danger. The danger. Now, God is all-powerful, and he owns all things. But here's the reality. If you have $10,000 in your bank account, and, you give to, and the Spirit of God convicts you to give $10,000, you know how much you're going to have in your bank account? Zero. And I had, like, no college math classes. <laughs> Speech communication all the way. But can the Lord restore that? Of course, he gave you the energy and the time and the abilities. I'm sure there's a multitude of us. I mean, Jesus pulls a coin out of a fish's mouth. He owns all things. Can he? Sure. Will he? Not necessarily. But we're called to give prayerfully and faithfully and obediently as the Spirit leads us. To excel in the grace of giving as obedient learners and followers of Jesus Christ. But they take that good gift that God gives and they turn it and they manipulate it into an ATM. Sadly, praying on the weak. So to take a text about the character and trustworthiness of God, you see how it perverts itself. They pervert it, I should say. His character is above, above reproach, so abide in the Lord by his word. His word is trustworthy. That's what that text is about. Israel, believe the Lord will do what he says he will do by his word. Secondly, his power is sovereign over the elements. We see this in his word all over the place. Verse 11 I will rebuke the devourer for you. That's why many think this is likely talking about pests that are eating their crops. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. What are they being told to do? Let's, let's, let's put ourselves in their shoes. Let's go back 24, 2,500 years. Agricultural dominant society. Let's imagine this. Let's imagine that the land is being ravaged. And yes, God's word tells us, and yes, we entered into a covenant with the Lord. And we'll do these things, and the Lord will keep his promise, and our land will be blessed. But we look at the land as our hearts have already hardened against God and hardening, and we look just rationally. And the crop is not giving 100%. The crop is only given about 20% total. What's a good financial person do? We need to do what? Trim the, let's trim the fat. I mean, surely the Lord would understand that we can't give 10%. We hardly have anything we're harvesting this year. So let's not give, we don't have to give the 10%. God would understand. He's compassionate and wise. I mean, he would understand that we can't, we can't do this. Our circumstances are exceptional. Surely God doesn't desire us to still give 10% when our crops have only produced 20%. And they rationalize their disobedience 
because they doubt the character and sovereignty of God. When you and I look too long at our own circumstances, we will be tempted to make the same mistake. And we will rationalize disobedience because we fail to recall the sovereignty of God. God created all things from out of nothing. He had Satan cast down from heaven like nothing. Obviously for Israel, he could take care of a few bugs or a lack of rain. And so too in our lives. Isn't that true, believer? How often do I need to hear? The answer is daily where I get so easily and quickly overwhelmed by my circumstances, overwhelmed by my limitations, that I am slow to go to the Lord by His Word. One of the gifts that God gives us as a body of Christ is with one arm around each other to, to comfort each other and say, this is tough. But with the other hand, to point each other to the goodness of the Lord and His Word. He's unchanging. It's worth abiding in. He's worth abiding in. He's sovereign and good. That's the gift that the Lord gives us in the body of Christ. Thirdly, his glory should be central in our story. We note in His Word, to which we ought to abide, that His glory should be central in our story. Verse 12. So what will happen if they keep the part of the Sinai covenant they're to keep? Verse 12. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Israel's blessing isn't even about Israel. Israel's blessing is being about Jacob I loved. And they're abiding in the Lord. The Lord blesses them and blesses their land. And so the, the watching pagan world has no choice but to look and say, your God is good and faithful and true. He's glorious. Israel's blessing is about the glory of God. As believers in Jesus Christ, it's not about our story. It's about the glory of God being shown through our lives. That every circumstance we face, listen, is, is a situation to delight in the Lord in. You and I know numerous people who have been faithful to Christ in little, who have been faithful to Christ through suffering, faithful to Christ through heartache, faithful to Christ through temptations. They have delighted in the Lord. And it has edified you in the faith and built you up. That is what God gives us as an opportunity as a people is to abide in the Lord in all seasons and circumstances of life, to give God glory. When we give God glory, we don't lose. We don't lack because we were made by God to delight in Him. We were made by God to glorify Him. In every season, to delight in Him doesn't mean putting on a faux smile. It means looking to the Lord by His Word and saying, you, God, are faithful still. You are faithful. And you're worthy of my life even now. Then all nations will call you blessed. What an opportunity we have as a body of Christ to be blessed in all circumstances of life as we aim to abide in Him. He's un, he is faithful. In a world of shifting shadows, He is faithful. Next steps. Next steps. Number one, hardening hearts, as we discussed, often show themselves through closed hands, the symptoms of closed hands in our life. Talk about the symptoms of closed hands of marriage, closed hands in the gifts and design and offices that the Lord has given the body, given His people. 
and even with finances. So in the areas of our life, our time, talents, and treasures, where you and I are most likely to view ourselves as owners rather than as stewards. Owners rather than stewards. Would you find time this week to talk to the Lord and ask His Spirit to search your heart and show you the areas and components of your life where you're most likely to be an owner rather than a steward of the gifts He's given and entrusted to you? And if you're not sure, this is a, this is a great question to be able to ask somebody that knows you well. What a great discussion question to ask, a family or a friend. Hey, if you were to look at my life honestly, what are the spots you think of those three kind of general categories I'm most likely to be an owner? Secondly, when something or someone changes or breaks their word this week, that's an opportunity to treasure and delight in the Lord whose word is unchanging. He's faithful. He's good. So yes, moan it for a moment. This stinks. And then lead it to praise the Lord who's unchanging and faithful. In a world of ever-changing, He's given us His good and trustworthy Word to build our lives upon. Great is His faithfulness. Would you pray with me before we stand and respond in worship? Well, Lord, You are worthy of Your glory. Your kindness to create us and to redeem us by faith in Jesus. That You would give us Your unchanging Word. Your Spirit-breathed Word. That Holy Spirit, you would indwell us and you would convict us and you comfort us. Lord, you know our hearts. And we ask this morning and we thank you for your word. We rejoice in your word and we thank you that if we will but return, Lord, you use your word, you use your spirit, you use your people to lift our eyes back to you. We thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray, God, you would find us a more reverent and reflective people of your kindness and grace and your faithfulness. Lord, our confidence comes not by us, but by you. Help us to sing your praises, to truly believe that great is your faithfulness in all things. You're worthy of our lives. We give you glory this week in every circumstance that will be new to us. Find us faithful as we hope to gather together again. You're worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together. You stand with me as we worship.